You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, looking at the IR impact of the LSE merger, Hong Kong's principles for responsible ownership, and what we learned from profiling the top people in corporate governance. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast, a weekly round of the top stories from around the world of investor relations, brought to you by IR Magazine and BusinessWire. BusinessWire is where your news is made. You can use their patented distribution network and amplification tools to reach audiences around the world by visiting services.businesswire.com. This week, the IR Magazine studios are filled with the sounds of Tim Human, Garnet Roach and Condice de Montpetit. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Hello. And to start us off today, there's a, a new medium that may be resurrected in the same vein as vinyl records, uh, Polaroid cameras, and the apparent renaissance of the fax machine. An article from Director, which is the Institute of Directors magazine, says that experts believe reverting to traditional ink and paper may, quote, have cognitive um, as well as therapeutic benefits. So is it time to handwrite this year's 10K or submit your next CV written on the back of a napkin? Well, one expert quoted says that writing by hand enables a more considered approach to sentence construction, a deeper grasp of concepts when used to take notes, and even accelerated learning. This particular source was, however, a one-time spokesman for Parker Pens. Um, Another, Paul Antonio, who's a London-based calligrapher, claims that writing in cursive offers an altered state of consciousness, which sounds like it might have the same effect on writing that letter to your CEO as a few measures of whiskey. Uh, The article also cites previous studies that suggest that children who learn to write the alphabet by hand are better at recognising letters than those who learn by typing on a computer. Um, And the age-old wisdom that taking notes by hand rather than a laptop gives students a better grasp of the material studied. And it particularly is relevant this week because Tim has written all of his notes for the ticker in a kind of mad pencil scroll on a bit of actual paper. So clearly you're a proponent of this already. Well, I think it it makes sense to me if you've got a lot of time and you sit down, you've got your favourite pen, you've got a really nice notepad, and you sit down there and really leisurely write out something that you're thinking about. I'm sure that's a very... Uh, enjoyable, uh, contemplative kind of way to, to to deal with a subject. Is that how you write your ticker notes? Every uh, yeah, I just had a look. That does look like what you did. My ticker notes were written as, as quickly as I could possibly scroll. <laughs> and therefore, I'm worried that I'm not even going to be able to read them myself, let alone anybody else being able to comprehend them. In French, we call that un bordel organisé. Which is? Um, uh, an organised mess. Yes. Oh, nothing to do with a, a bordello, just by the way. <laughs> I think that's why I like typing on keyboards, because I can type fast and then I can still read it afterwards. Um, when it comes to writing on paper, the faster I go, the more it just becomes a squiggly line. Yeah, it's a double lose, really. I mean, I, I quite like the image of returning to kind of floor traders running around with scraps of paper, at least, and notebooks in the name of that being a bit more therapeutic for them. But we're going to move on quickly to a stock exchange that's considering its future rather than a handwritten past, because Garnet, you've been finding a bit more out about the potential implications of the LSE's merger. Yeah, I've been having a look at what um, such a deal might actually mean for companies. As I'm sure everybody knows, the Deutsche Börse is um, proposing a so-called merger of equals with the London Stock Exchange in what is actually the third attempt to bring these European exchanges together. Um, The first was in 2000 and then again in 2004. And this time around, it it does look like it might be a bit smoother, though, um, as Herbie Skeet, managing director of exchange intelligence firm Mondo Visione, The last time the two exchanges tried to merge, he explains, it was to form a company that was going to be called IX, and the plan was that it would be one unified exchange. But that presented problems. Um, As Herbie points out, you you would have had the possibility of German companies being subject to UK rules, which probably wouldn't have gone down terribly well, or vice versa. This time, though, Herbie says, quote, these issues seem to have been sidestepped, at least initially. 
And as the Financial Times also reports, citing people close to the two sides, the European trading giant planned by Deutsche Börse and the London Stock Exchange will be based in London, but headed by the German group's chief executive. And the question that we want to know the answer to is, uh, if this deal goes ahead, what will the impact be for IROs? Well, it doesn't look like there'd be huge changes for IROs. Um, If it does go as planned, there could be some significant savings, though. As Herbie notes, some analysts estimate savings of around 300 million euros. Um, Some estimates... um, some estimates go a lot higher. But either way, he says, quote, some of that should be coming back to cut costs of initial listings and outgoing fees. And London is already expensive for listings. Then there are things like the cost of market data. Again, that is already very expensive. I also talked to David Lloyd C, deputy chair of the UK's IR Society, who echoed Herbie's comments. He did highlight a few areas that IRO should keep an eye on, though, such as creeping costs, both absolute and hidden, as well as administrative burden and the risk of getting lost in a bigger pool. But he says that most of those things will be far outweighed by the advantages of the merger, which should create efficiencies within the exchanges themselves. He adds that, quote, this should in turn be passed on to customers, the corporates. But with all that said and done, isn't there still another potential bid on the cards, though? Well, it appears so. Um, so there's already a potential rival bid from Intercontinental Exchange, and commentators also predict that some of the other large players might also be looking to get in on this. Despite that, though, Deutsche Börse announced on Wednesday that it has agreed to sell International Securities Exchange, its US options business, to rival NASDAQ for $1.1 billion, in what Herbie deems a bit of tidying up as the bid progresses. But even if the Deutsche Börse offer does turn out to be the most attractive, there's still the possibility that Brussels will voice some concerns, as it did in the failed merger between Deutsche Börse and the New York Stock Exchange a few years ago, even if it doesn't go as far as actually blocking the merger. It doesn't sound like it's a deal that's been done then, in any sense of the word. No, and I think the sector is um, quite used to failed mergers. So um, not that I'm saying this will be a failed merger, but um, (laughs) definitely not a done deal. Yeah, I remember about uh, four years ago, there were three mergers all trying to happen at the same time. Um, maybe that was the Deutsche Börse, um, nicer year next one. There was also one in, in Asia between um, Singapore Stock Exchange and the Australian Stock Exchange. And then there was a third one. I think that was a London Stock Exchange in Toronto. And they all failed. There you go. Oops. Well, there's one stock exchange very close to home. Um, we're going to move along to one on the other side of the world. And the, uh, the Hong Kong Exchange, there's, there's some news about them. Yes, there's a new stewardship code for the Hong Kong market. The Securities and Futures Commission has launched its Principles of Responsible Ownership, which sets out how institutions should exercise stewardship at uh, the companies they invest in. And so it seems the the UK has provided some uh, inspiration here. Um, The new principles are a non-binding and voluntary scheme, similar to the the UK's Comply or Explain Stewardship Code, that was launched by the FRC in 2010. And what are the recommendations made? The Hong Kong guidelines uh, have seven recommendations, uh, which include monitoring and engaging with issuers, having policies on managing conflicts of interest when investing on behalf of clients, having clear policies on voting and acting collectively with other investors when appropriate, among other things. The SFC will also be discussing with its stakeholders issues around ownership responsibility of uh, intermediaries holding retail shareholder interests and whether it should be made mandatory for fund houses to disclose their engagement policies. The regulator's CEO, Ashley Alder, said in a release, quote, The principles of responsible ownership describe what we perceive as best practices for share ownership, and we encourage investors to adopt them. This can encourage an investment culture where engagement with investee companies is seen as paramount and fundamental, which in turn strengthens corporate governance. So I guess this makes uh, the Hong Kong Exchange one of the latest uh, to implement a stewardship code, because there are others around the world, right? Yes, actually, a stewardship frenzy, if uh, we may call it that way, <laughs> has caught up with uh, the rest of the world after the UK published the world's first guidelines. So that was in 2010, uh, as I mentioned. 
so now South Africa, Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy, and Malaysia uh, have all published their own stewardship code. Singapore, which has a, a corporate governance code since 2012, held a much publicized roundtable on stewardship last year. Adrian Chan, the first vice chairman of the Singapore Institute of Directors, said in an article in the Singapore Business Times, quote, One challenge to increasing the level of investor responsibility in Singapore is the, the structure of our legal system. Our shareholders have no duties or obligations, only rights. Well, there you go. I think I think uh, stewardship fever might be the right the right phrase to describe it. It seems to be something that's increasingly uh, important because I think you've hinted at this. It kind of if you have good good standards and ownership, then that will promote good corporate governments in return, and then hopefully the whole thing will will even out. You know, produce better companies and better investors all around. Exactly. Precisely. <laughs> Keeping on the subject of corporate governance, though, and Tim, you've been looking further into um, a feature we wrote this month about the top people in corporate governance, the who's who. Yes, uh, this feature focuses on the uh, North American market in particular. And what we did is we went around uh, several large institutional investors and spoke to the heads of corporate governance there. So the idea behind the feature is that governance in general is an area of growing interest on the buy side. That's been a trend for a few years. And so the people who are in charge of governance, people who set the governance policies of these institutions and also manage the voting, these are increasingly important individuals and certainly people that IROs should be aware of. And if they and and it's useful for them to be able to tell their companies who these people are, what they're responsible for and so on. Actually, one of these investors said to us, it's a bit of a case of be careful what you wish for. Because for years, they've been asking companies to engage with them more over governance. And now loads and loads of companies are, and they're finding it a bit of an administrative nightmare because they're getting so many in- incoming requests for meetings and phone calls and so on. They've opened up Pandora's, Pandora's governance box. Exactly. Um, so, so what I've done is I've gone through um, the discussions we've had with these various institutions and pulled out a few sort of headline findings. So first of all, in terms of what kind of issues they're focused on. And then also in terms of what kind of access they're interested in, how they want to engage with companies. Uh, finally, I've also just pulled a few particular sort of idiosyncrasies of some of the people we spoke to, which I thought would be useful anecdotes to, to share with companies. So what did you find were the, the main issues that people were focusing on? I think um, a, a first point you have to make here is that there's, there certainly isn't one or two main issues that uh, sort of governance professionals at these institutions are particularly interested in. As one person put it to us, if you spoke to... 20 different governance focused shareholders you'd probably get 20 different top priorities so you really are as, as you speak to each one you are going to be tackling a lot of different subjects saying that from speaking to these um, these eight institutions we have got a, a decent idea of some of the main areas that most of them are interested in so a lot of people talked about the board first of all lots of different things to do with the board but just stuff to do with the board for example board composition board refreshment uh, board diversity and board quality. All of these things were areas that a lot of these governance heads uh, want to talk to companies about. A few issues came up with, that we've talked about on the podcast before, such as proxy access, which there's a whole load of new resolutions to companies about that this year. And then also executive compensation, which has been a really big issue in the US ever since sale on pay came in a few years back. Finally, um, environmental issues came up quite a lot. Um, two in particular, climate change, and also water management. A lot of uh, these investors want to talk to companies about their policies around having a sustainable approach to water and water management. So that's an interesting area to think about uh, for the future. Well, that covers w- uh, what they want to cover. Is there any, any information you gleaned about how they want to engage with companies on this and how they want companies to talk to them? Yes. Well, uh, again, like, like with the issues, there's a range of different ways that they like to engage depending on the individual. But there's a few sort of headlines that you can pull out of there. 
I think the first one, one of the most important ones, is that if they don't want to talk to you, that's a good thing. If you try and set up a meeting and they say we're not interested, that's because they haven't identified you as a, a company with a governance issue that they need to address. So as one of them pointed out, even if you're getting in touch and saying our chairman will talk to you or our CEO will talk to you, they may still say no. And if you get that response and view that positively, not negatively. Another topic that came up a lot is when to engage. And a lot of people pointed out that trying to engage during proxy season when all of these people are very busy is a bad idea. And so to try and plan your engagement outside of proxy season, if you do want to set up meetings, try and do it in the fall. And, and we see that with a lot of US companies doing an increasing number of uh, governance roadshows at that time of year. And, and a final point here is just, we, we often talk about trying to set up meetings, but you know, just picking up the phone and having a quick phone call is, is one way to do it. A couple of people we spoke to said they have so many requests for meetings that actually they try and stay in the office and do a lot of it over the phone because they can just get through that many more companies that way. You mentioned you had a couple of good case studies and, and anecdotes uh, you found while writing this feature. Does anything stick out in particular you'd like to tell us about? Yes, well, in the feature, as you go through each institution, you get to find out a bit more about the individuals who work there. We actually pull out a few uh, things that they like to do outside of work as well, you know, to sort of oil the wheels of sort of communication and engagement with them. In terms of some specific kind of examples of how they like to engage, I thought I'd pull out just a few, a few examples. Um, State Street, where the head of... Uh, corporate governance is a lady called Raki Kumar uh, she, she finds that the way that she the best way that for her to approach this topic is to pick out a couple of sectors each year and focus on those because she just doesn't have the resources to man- look across all sectors and so if you know that you're, the, you're in one of the sectors that she's looking at for that year it's more likely that they're going to engage with you and so State Street in, for 2016 is looking at the IT and automotive industries. We also spoke to Michelle Edkins who's head of corporate governance at BlackRock And she had a solution for this problem of the fact that institutional investors are getting lots of incoming requests for meetings. Companies want to start a dialogue with them, but there may not actually be an issue. And so the investor doesn't want to talk to them in particular. So what she likes companies to do is to have a light touch in with her where they drop her an email saying, hi, just wanted to say these are my contact details. If you've got any issues, this is the way to contact me. And, and if you do that, then that's all the engagement you need to do with BlackRock in terms of corporate governance until there's something that really needs to be talked about. And one final anecdote, which was interesting from uh, Morgan Stanley Investment Management, was that uh, they made a strong point that they don't rehash uh, proxy advisor recommendations when it comes to making their decisions. If you're at odds with a proxy advisor when it comes to a particular issue, if you're dealing with Morgan Stanley, you don't want to go there and try and explain to them why the proxy advisor is wrong. Because if anything, that'll make it worse because you're implying that they're using their recommendation rather than thinking about things themselves, thinking about things themselves. Therefore, what Morgan Stanley advises is when you go and talk to them, make sure you're talking about why what you want to do is the right thing to do. Don't try and tackle and take apart the proxy advisor's recommendation. Very sound advice, just in time for proxy season as well. Yes, although I guess uh, one of the problems is if you haven't started this process now... <laughs> it's a bit late. It's there, they're, they're saying, don't talk to us now. <laughs> Notes for next year. Notes for next autumn. Yes. Do try harder. Well, there is just enough time to mention two upcoming IO Magazine events. Uh, first, we've got the Think Tank West Coast 2016. That is happening on Thursday, March 24th at the Garden Court Hotel in Palo Alto. It's a chance for IROs and their peers to discuss some of the most pressing issues facing the profession with a raft of expert panellists and thought leaders to shape discussions. Places are still available. There is also the IO Magazine Awards US 2016 the week after on Thursday, March 31st, held at the Soprani Wall Street in New York City. 
Um, there will be crowning the best IR practitioners and issuers in the USA in a beautiful awards ceremony. Tables and tickets are still available. For more info on both events, please visit irmagazine.com forward slash events. As always, you can stay up to date with us on Twitter at irmagazine and do make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, please. Um, this week, I remind you the ticker was brought to you by Business Wire, where your news is made every day. Releases distributed via their painted network become news conversations around the world. Learn how your news can too by visiting services.businesswire.com. And that's it. Thanks, Tim Condice and Carnet, for bringing us the news this week. Thank you, Thank you. Cheers, Lou. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app. 